0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Francis Beckwith about Roman Catholicism. This is part of our series we're doing on different faith traditions, learning directly from those within them. We hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity within each interview that leads us to a better understanding. So we're gonna cover topics like, what is Roman Catholicism? How is that potentially connected to the great tradition of the church? What are some different unique aspects of Roman Catholicism? What might be some areas of potential critique how did you become a Roman Catholic and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your co host, Brandon Askew.
0: And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. But we don't want to be serious in a uh, aggressive, annoying, mean way. We want to be serious with particular virtues in mind, such as charity, curiosity, uh, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And as you know, part of the series that we've been doing here on, on different denominations and faith traditions, I think we've really tried to promote particularly charity, particularly curiosity, and cheerful confessionalism. Because I think uh, almost everybody that we've talked to has... their own faith tradition has a confession that they hold to, that they want to confess together. Uh, And we want to understand what each tradition means and understands the faith to mean. So I think both me and Brandon are Baptists. I've always been a Baptist. I think Brandon's always been a Baptist. I mean, pretty sure Brandon would call himself Baptist of the bone, um, (laughs) something like that. But I, I think for me, when I think about different denominations, the one that I probably was exposed to the most but still didn't know very much about was Roman Catholicism. So I am super excited to pick Dr. Frank Beckwith's uh, brain on Roman Catholicism to understand it, uh, all that goes on with it, what they, what they mean, what how they understand uh, the Christian faith, because number one, I think Dr. Beckwith is awesome. So I've long admired his work and I find him just a, a model uh, of excellent uh, thinking. So I, I'm really looking forward to just talking with him. Number to begin with, but also because you're a Roman Catholic. So this is a perfect person (laughs) to ask questions about Roman Catholicism. So Dr. Beckwith, before we get started, uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, can you give me a little bit of background biography on you? And then maybe a a question for you before we get into asking about Roman Catholicism is, did you grow up a Roman Catholic or were you, uh, did you, Swim the Tiber at some point if you weren't? Because I'm pretty sure I remember you were a Baptist at some point. I could be wrong or misspeaking. Uh, So I'll let you answer that.
2: Sure. Yeah, well, right right now I'm a uh, professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University uh, in Waco, Texas, uh, and also uh, an affiliate professor of political science and associate director of our graduate program in philosophy. Uh, I have to say, though, that we are also the national champions in basketball, which is <laughs> something I'm deeply proud of. Uh, I'm proud of other things as well about the school, but that, that was pretty cool to win the national championship. Uh, as far as my personal biography, I, I did grow up Catholic. I was born into a Catholic family in Brooklyn, New York, and my parents moved to Las Vegas, Nevada in 1967 when I was six years old. Uh, As I entered my early teens, I drifted away from the Catholic Church. I found myself very much attracted to the early Jesus movement. I went to this Jesus People Church in downtown Las Vegas called Maranatha House and began going there Thursday evenings uh, when I was 13 years old. Uh, It's remarkable that my parents let me do this. I don't even know why. (laughs) But they did, uh, and in some ways, they're to be commended for not kind of squashing my interest in, in 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 my desire to follow Jesus. So I ultimately was, you know, drawn to that kind of worship and that kind of very evangelistic, uh, very out front, exuberant type of Christianity, and was drawn also when I was there to the tape and book library. And so I found myself reading and listening to a lot of evangelical authors, uh, many of whom you guys have heard of people like uh, R.C. Sproul and Ronald Nash. Uh, they tended to be folks that were more theologically and philosophically oriented. And then uh, pretty much considered myself Catholic up until... Uh, high school uh, went through a short period of time of being a kind of an agnostic uh, had a kind of crisis of faith and then during my senior year uh, returned to Christianity uh, but through evangelicalism and then uh, went off to uh, did my undergraduate work at the University of Nevada uh, went to graduate school at Fordham University in New York City where I did my PhD in philosophy and had my first job at UNLV, and about a decade after that, uh, went to law school. (laughs) And uh, a couple of years after that, found myself at Baylor University and also the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. And it was in the middle of my presidency in 2007 that I reverted. I returned uh, to the Catholic Church. That's that's the, the, the kind of short and sweet version of it. There's a lot more Obviously, components to that story, but uh, but that's my background. And uh, you mentioned being a Baptist. I, I I actually did. My wife and I did attend a Baptist church here in Waco uh, called Dayspring, but it was an unusual Baptist church. It was a kind of almost like a high church Baptist church, if you can imagine such a thing. There was a there was an altar. You know, it's ironic that oftentimes Baptist churches are associated with altar calls, but usually there's no altar, right? But, but in this case, they actually uh, read the uh, uh, the weekly readings that corresponded roughly to the ones you would hear in the Catholic Church in terms of scripture. Uh, so it was a kind of so we did attend that, and and Baylor itself is a Baptist university, although I've never officially uh, been Baptist.
1: Now that I know you're into Baylor sports, part of me wants to ask you if you take back Matt Rule because right now it's not working out with my Carolina Panthers. But we'll we'll just stick with the yeah.
2: <laughs> we'll just yeah, stick but, with the the discussion. Yeah, that hurt a, awesome. a little bit, but I think we, we got the better end of the deal.
1: Yeah, it is not going well on our end of the deal right now. But yeah, we we could talk about that later. So let's let's dig into uh, Roman Catholicism. So if you if you met someone on the street and they just ask you what is Roman Catholicism, what would be your answer to the man on the street? What would you say the core tenets are?
2: I would say it's Catholicism is just the Nicene Creed. the you know which is about three paragraphs long and is recited in a lot of Christian churches other than the Catholic Church, uh, but each element of the Nicene Creed uh, is essential to Catholics' understanding of themselves. Uh, now, obviously, uh, you want there are going to be ways in which Catholics read those parts of the Creed that differ from, let's say. A Presbyterian or an Anglican reads it. So, for example, when it says that uh, there is one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, that's something that Catholics uh, believe refers to an identifiable, visible entity who's headquartered in 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 the Vatican. Uh, and when it says uh, uh, one baptism for the remission of sins, it's affirming, baptismal regeneration, that baptism has a role in removing something called original sin. Uh, so, so yeah, so. It, but if you wanted the sort of short and sweet, it's, yeah, it's basically the Nicene Creed. Uh, and the one thing about the Nicene Creed that's important to remember is that every aspect of it um, is carefully wrought. And so for example when it says that the father is cons- son is consubstantial with the father for the catholic that has a specific kind of philosophical pedigree that commits us to things that some other christians may not be committed to
0: so what would you say those things are? i'm just curious now what what kind of things does that commit you to that others might not be committed to
2: so i mean here's something that uh, you know that i have actually been thinking about lately because of uh recent work by my friend william lane craig you guys know who bill craig is yeah. great christian philosopher and he's a very dear friend uh but he's a uh, he's a nominalist when it comes to uh the the reality of what are called universals that's a that's a technical debate uh that philosophers have had since uh, actually begins roughly with plato and then then it re- returns again at the end of the middle ages and, but but bill's a nominalist and it's always i mean yet he will tell you that he can affirm the nicene creed but it seems to me that if you talk about uh the father or the son having two natures let's say or that um the father is the Son is consubstantial with the Father, that term substance has a technical meaning. It's a term of art. And it commits you, I think, to a particular understanding of what God's being is and something like what are substances and, and questions like that. So so I do think that, that um, you know, the Nicene Creed is not, just a framework. I think she think it actually commits one to substantive claims about mm. God and, and His nature. Uh, so something like um, and actually, I think this actually ties into some of the and I've, I and here I'm, I'm I'll plead uh, ignorance, but I'm I am kind of tangentially aware of some of the debates in the Baptist world about the um, uh, the submission of the Son. I think that's, I don't know how the actual technical terms and, I you know, if if I could be so bold as to insert my own opinion on that, I think that any sort of hierarchy within the Trinity is not, is inconsistent with the Nicene Creed. Um, so, in any event, so I do think it sort of commits you to, to certain things about, about God and his nature. Yeah. So
0: I think you probably just made 85% of our listeners very happy. So now they like you. If they didn't know you, they like you now, and they're going to follow your stuff. Uh, the other 15% are going to be mad. So, so sorry, those who are
2: mad. <laughs> well, you know what? I, 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 I really, you know, since um, since leaving the— I, I really I got to be careful, because I, I, mean, I was going to say leaving the evangelical world. In some ways, I can never leave it. It's just an integral part of—, of of what I've become. Um, I'm Catholic, but, you know, I spent 30 years in the evangelical world and it can't help, it it can't help but to have, uh, shaped and influenced me in significant ways. And I do care very much about my brothers and sisters in that world. And so, um, you know, when I, when I read some of these things, um, I'm, I'm concerned, um, because I, I do think that, uh, you know, what our common heritage is, is something that we we, we should tread lightly in rejecting, even if it means uh, not taking views that are consistent with, let's say, current cultural trends.
0: So uh, and a somewhat related question to this common heritage that you spoke of, you know, we've asked... I think everybody, this sort of question of how is it that, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy or Pentecostalism or Presbyterianism is connected to the great tradition uh, of the church. And a lot of the times, if it's stuff that's in the reformation or later, it's easy to ask this question for Roman Catholicism. I feel like it's a little bit more difficult because when exactly did Roman Catholicism, as we know it today, originate. Now, I think a lot of Protestants are going to say, "Well, that didn't actually happen until, you know, X year." Yeah. And maybe you as a Roman Catholic would say, "Well, it starts right there with Peter, and, and, you know, yeah. in Matthew 16." So, how how might you answer that question? So, maybe it's not so much just the theological yeah. answer as it is the the cultural, sociological, institutional way of looking at it.
2: Yeah, I've been thinking I've been thinking about that question since you sent it. You you sent me the uh, the topics that we were going to discuss and and I I was thinking that there, I mean there's two ways that you can answer it there's the kind of triumphalist Catholic answer right I can say we are the great tradition <laughs> and I, I mean that's the that's the kind of answer that that I think cat you know gets kind sort of Catholic self understanding right it's like uh, you know we're the trunk. You know, you guys are the branches, that that kind of thing. And, and I think, look, as a Catholic, it, you know, yeah, I, I, that's the story I believe is true. Uh, but having said that, that to give a sort of more ecumenical answer, uh, I think if you look at the way in which um, Protestant denominations uh, are different from each other, in in a weird way you find all the elements— of Catholicism detached from its roots. And so to kind of give a, oh gosh, this is maybe not the best analogies, but if you think of, for example, um, Protestant churches that tend to be more um, oriented towards uh, a simple life, let's say like Mennonites. Well, you know, you probably, that corresponds roughly to the Franciscans. (laughs) Right. Or if you think of, you know, sort of your uh, stereotypical hardline Calvinists, well, there's your Jesuits. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that you find in, in a weird way within the kind of the fragmentation of the Christian world uh, manifestations of different styles of Catholicism that are within the Catholic Church, and so you find in the Catholic Church just a wide range of personality types, right? So you have, you know, Dor- Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker, and Thomas Aquinas, right? Like that's kind of weird, right? They don't, they don't kind of seem to fit together, uh, but but under a Catholic understanding, yeah, they, they kind of, they kind of do. Uh, so, yeah, so, so to, so I think where to answer, to go back to your initial question, um, how, where does Catholicism fit into the great tradition? I, from a Catholic point of view, looking back at the fragmentation of Christianity, it's almost as if we're everywhere, <laughs> right? Just in different ways, um. So I think, for for example, you know, I think, um, and I, I've been keeping up. I've been, I just noticed this debate that occurred um, online between James White and William Lane Craig about Molinism versus Calvinism, and, uh, and 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 you know, I watched a little bit of it, and I'm aware of of both uh, both individuals. I know Bill very well. I I don't know James White very well uh but as a catholic i i you know is it, you know well, by the way molina was a catholic um uh but when i think of sort of the catholic view of providence there's a much greater room for mystery than you find let's say between bill and 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 james like so the so this is going to sound odd for a catholic to say this but i do think that there are certain elements of the evangelical world that are that want to figure out everything about God and the Catholic would say, yeah but there's yeah, we have reason and we have faith, but at some point we just can't figure out everything and we have to learn to live with it right and so so I do think that both white and and Bill you know are picking out things that someone like Aquinas fully recognized uh, that 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 you need divine providence that there can't be anything that is not under divine sovereignty. And so in that sense, White recognizes a a deep truth that Aquinas recognized. And then Bill says, but human beings should have real liberty. Well, that's a truth that Aquinas recognizes as well. But what he says is that God's omnipotence is such that he can use human free will to, to achieve his ends, but we just don't know how he does it. And that's unsatisfying for some people because they want to figure everything out. But Aquinas says, well, if we could figure it out, maybe he wouldn't be God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, well, that's, my, that's my sort of paraphrase. But so uh, I do think that you find within the Protestant world these, these kind of, you know, kind of recognition of certain truths that are embedded in the sort of the, the Catholic world.
1: For this next question, I I feel like part of the answer may be historical, so let's leave that to the side because I think you you maybe already touched on that. But I want to ask you what is unique about Roman Catholicism compared to other uh, traditions and segments and denominations in Christianity. So maybe let's talk about what are what's unique about Roman Catholicism today. Maybe it's what 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 the liturgy is, or 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 something else that's um, specifically relevant to today.
2: Yeah, you know it it, it it's gonna. Depend, I think, largely on what denomination you're comparing Catholicism to. So if you, let's say, compare Eastern Orthodoxy to Catholicism, you're going to have fewer differences. Uh, There are going to be obviously differences. Uh, Those differences are going to uh, mostly involve uh, how best to understand apostolic succession and Uh, the role of the bishop of rome that's going to be the you know the the primary question uh, the primary difference when it comes to protestant denominations there you're going to have a wide range of of uh of uh, of different degrees of difference uh but i think primarily it's going to come down to uh i think the the catholic sacramental world view that um that God's grace can work through physical things. And so for this reason, Catholics believe that, uh, that in, in the case of the sacrament of, of communion, that the bread and wine literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. That um, the, when the priest uh, grants absolution to a penitent in confession, that's Christ working through him. So there's a a, a kind of different understanding of the relationship between um, nature and grace. Uh, But there are obviously other kinds of of disagreements. Uh, The question of church government. Uh, Catholics hold to a view of apostolic succession. Uh, They believe that the magisterium, that is the sort of the collection of leadership of the Catholic Church, including its bishops and archbishops and and cardinals, are a means by which God directs and guides the Church through history. An- another, um, I think, big disagreement between at least Catholics and evangelicals is over the relationship between tradition and Scripture. Uh, Catholics uh, look at Scripture as the book of the church and don't look at the, the don't look at the body of Christ as the church of the book. <laughs> I don't know if that, that makes sense. Um, so the way in which um, it's, it, and, and it's interesting though for Catholics. And if you read, especially some of the documents of Vatican II, like Verbum Dei uh, scripture is given uh, a, a primary purpose place in terms of authority. Um, and in that sense, we have something importantly in common with, with Protestants. But in terms of how uh, we should interpret Scripture and how should we understand Scripture, uh, that comes from the Church's tradition. So those are some of the disagreements, uh, or some of the differences.
0: Yeah, so... I think, you know, as a Protestant growing up, the only thing that I heard about Roman Catholicism that was different was, you know, justification, uh, maybe Mm. Mary and things like that. Well, the question, though, that I get, I had just, to be honest with you, I don't really understand, is how the church government really is set up. So you've got, like, cardinals and archbishops and, (laughs) like, can you explain that to me? Like, how does that structure
2: work? (laughs) I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, You know, um, yeah, so... uh, Yeah, so you've got the Bishop of Rome, um, and the Bishop of Rome has uh, universal authority over the Church. Uh, but he doesn't have, in a sense, absolute authority. In other words, the, the Bishop of Rome couldn't tomorrow say, um, you know, Jesus is not the Son of God. Uh, he's limited by both tradition and also the authority of the other bishops. And so one of the things that, um, uh, but not entirely. So, you know, obviously he's got, uh, he can uh, chastise and remove bishops. That That is part of his authority. But the understanding the church has is that each bishop in each diocese has a kind of uh, jurisdiction over the people and the, the, the those dioceses, but he's also under the authority of the Bishop of Rome. But it isn't a kind of, um, you know, as again, absolute authority. Um, who are what are cardinals? Well, uh, the cardinals are typically bishops or archbishops, although one could be a cardinal and technically be a layman. Uh, they are the individuals that are. Um. Uh, have the the power to elect the next pope. Uh, they are counselors uh, to to the bishop of Rome. I am not an expert in the history of of how cardinals arose. Um. So I'm. That's about all I can tell you. Um. Uh. You'll get. You'll hear once in a while of let's say a ordinary priest. Being, becoming a cardinal and not becoming a bishop. Uh, and usually that occurs after they are past the age of retirement. And it's a, usually it's it's to honor them. So Avery, uh, Avery Dulles, who uh, was a, a priest that taught at uh, Fordham University for years and a convert to Catholicism, was um, appointed cardinal by John Paul II. Uh, and John Henry Newman who was also a convert. He was became Cardinal Newman, um, but he was never a bishop.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I did not know that. Uh, so one of the things that we've asked all of our, our guests in this specific series about different Christian traditions is potential areas of concern um, that they have regarding their tradition. Is there anything going on in, in 21st century Roman Catholicism uh, that you think makes it open to critique, um, things that are are bringing concern uh, to you, or maybe things that you get that you get the most questions about.
2: Yeah. Oh, I think there's there's lots of things. <laughs> uh, there, I mean, I think the way that the church handled the uh, the sexual abuse crisis uh, was appalling. Uh, I think the church has done much better in the past couple of years but as we learn more and more things that have come out it it's it's scandalous and uh i think the reason why uh there's a couple of reasons why this happens i think when you have a a hierarchical church uh that uh for centuries up until the middle of the 19th century was actually its own sovereign government uh it it is difficult for people appointed by the Vatican to think of themselves ordinarily under the authority of civil government. (laughs) And I mean, it's, it's a kind of old uh, Protestant canard against Catholicism, but I do think there's a kind of element of truth to it. (laughs) Uh, And I think the church has had to learn how to live under the authority of states that aren't the Vatican. I mean people don't don't realize this uh, the the papal states and what is now known as Vatican City were actual was an actual government whose head of state was the Pope up until i think eighteen fifty nine or eighteen sixty uh, when Italy took over the papal states in which modern italy is 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 only about what a hundred and sixty uh, years old uh, so I think that's the one problem is the, the what's happened in the abuse crisis I do think um, uh, you know one of the things that that uh, that I think is difficult for um, for a lot of converts to Catholicism is that local churches are quite different so you you could go to a local Catholic parish that has uh, a very active uh, Catholic community, and others not so active at all, and so there is a uh, a kind of inconsistency across the Catholic world. Um, So, yeah. So I I I also think that uh, the the Church um, doesn't do a very good job, at least in America, of Reining in institutions that have departed from uh, its tradition. So you'll find, for example, universities, colleges, high schools that will say they're Catholic, uh, but t- teach things that are contrary to church teachings and are hostile to it. And uh, very few in the hierarchy have the courage to take that on. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's... Um, you know, the, you know, if I could, you know, be so bold as to, <laughs> as to list them, uh, never having been a bishop, never been put in that position, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure there are answers to this that bishops would give me, but I do think that those are problems.
0: A question I have, you know, you're at Baylor, I imagine there's probably more Protestants at Baylor than not, I would guess. Oh, yeah. So... When those students come to you and they ask the typical questions, hey, justification by faith alone, how is it that you answer that? Would you say, well, we're actually a lot closer than it, than it seems, or is there a legitimate difference where we just say, yeah, we, we just disagree here?
2: Yeah, I, I, I do think there a, there is a legitimate difference, but I think uh, the difference has to do with the nature of, of grace and the way it works in moving the soul to assent to Christ. So uh, one of the things I, when I, when I get students who ask these questions, and by the way, I, I should say that I've had a couple of students over the years uh, come to my office, you know, interested in Catholicism. And uh, some of my fellow Catholics may disagree with me on this, but I, because I teach at a Baptist school, I usually just tell them to go talk to a Catholic priest outside the university, Uh, and I I, 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 kind of still want to respect the institution that I'm teaching at, and and, um, uh, again, some people may disagree with me on that, but uh, I do think that uh, I don't consider, I I don't think my place at Baylor is to proselytize for the Catholic Church. (laughs) Uh I, I'll answer questions, like if someone asks a question about justification. So one of the things that I'll tell my student to look at is go and read uh, the Council of Orange's canons from the 4th from the century. The Council of Orange was a regional council that was uh, put together in response to Pelagianism and Semi-Pelagianism. And what's interesting, if you read it carefully, uh, one of the things it does teach is, is that baptism removes original sin. The other thing that it says is that uh, that grace must precede the act of the will in order to accept Christ. And so because one of the things that Pelagius taught is that you could, in fact, receive salvation without grace. And so the Augustine, and others responded very strongly against this. And eventually Augustine's view uh, is what gets appropriated by, by the council. And I, I then tell them to read, the go and read then the Council of Trent, and then read the Contemporary Catechism, and then read Thomas Aquinas on on justification. And what you discover there is that the Catholic view is that it's again, in one sense, it's, there's an appeal to mystery, that God gives us the grace, the initial grace, that makes us right with him. But because we are creatures that by nature are have a will, that we have an obligation to exercise our will, consistent with that grace, in order to be transformed into the image of Christ. That we're not working our way to heaven. It's not like there's a balance sheet, but that there is a sense in which we are a particular type of organism that is intended to develop in order to become more like he who created us. And so you find, for example, in some of the other church fathers claims about, uh, you know, God became man so that we can become like God. Now, it wasn't—it wasn't like the Mormon way of thinking about it. It was that we had become transformed into His likeness, in the sense of becoming more holy. And so, that view. Uh, now, now, but you find then, and you guys could correct me if if, if I'm misrepresenting this, but uh, in the Protestant world, you often find the claim that one is justified forensically, and then one will manifest good works as a consequence of that justification. So it seems to me that in both traditions, you do have a relationship between grace, faith, and works. Uh, and in a sense, if let's say somebody were to not um, manifest these works, you may doubt their justification, <laughs> right? So I think it's it's a lot more complicated uh, than, than I think people really appreciate and that I also think it comes down to um kind of this this philosophical um understanding of what exactly grace is uh is it is it real stuff or if, in sort of classical way of putting it is it a divine quality that can change nature and I think there is where you may have the real rub um, But I find it interesting, you know, one of the, I have a new book that that just came out called uh, Never Doubt Thomas. And uh, it's a a book on Thomas Aquinas and how uh, he can help uh, evangelicals and Catholics to better understand each other. And so I have a chapter on justification. And that chapter, I go through the writings of three very well-known evangelical authors, Norm Geisler, R.C. Sproul, and John Gerstner, who all three of whom consider themselves Thomists, and they love Aqu- they loved Aquinas. And and one of the things that that each of them says is that Aquinas' his view of justification uh, was fine, but the church kind of messed up <laughs> later. But one of the points I make in the book is that actually Aquinas' view is pretty much indistinguishable from what you read in Trent and in the Catechism. And I then asked, I tried to answer the question, well, why, what did they miss? How did they miss it? And I think it's because Aquinas is writing for a largely unified Western Christianity that is not in polemical warfare over these issues. So he's not, so when you, so I can easily imagine somebody like a Sproul or a Geiser or a Gerstner who are, who really love Aquinas' metaphysics and his view of God. And reading that through the eyes of uh, kind of Reformation thinking, and and the absent the polemics, you can actually sort of you know see Aquinas as a kindred spirit. So my theory is it's they just love him, <laughs> and they and they just don't want him to be wrong. Uh, but I do think that that the views are a little bit closer. Um, and uh, I mean, for me, as a, a, when I returned to the Catholic Church, I mean. The thing about that was really helpful to me, and this is just from my own personal experience. I don't know what other other people have different experiences, but I always had a tough time figuring out what to do with post-baptismal sin. Um, And for me, the sacrament of confession has been really helpful to me. It hasn't been a burden. I don't think of like working my way to heaven. I just think I'm much more aware of my own unholiness. (laughs) Unholiness, <laughs> and that has been a kind of liberating thing for me. Um, so, in any event, that's sort of
1: yeah, it's no, not- that's it's very helpful. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you. This is more of a uh, a subjective question, but what do you what is 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 the most beautiful thing about the Roman Catholic Church to you? Is it the way? Uh, that the liturgy looks and operates, or is what is it that draws you um aesthetically uh to the church
2: I, it's gonna sound weird to say this, i guess, but <laughs> uh I mean there is a lot of you know there is a lot of beauty in terms of if you think of um if you go, let's say, to some of the great cathedrals and basilicas and, and, and and that, but that wasn't what, I mean, for me, when I think of the beauty, I don't think of the art or the sculptures or even the Gregorian chants, all of which are, are beautiful, but I think of the uh, little old lady who says the Nicene Creed at Mass every Sunday or daily Mass? Who doesn't know what consubstantial with the Father is? <laughs> I mean, I think there's a there's a kind of simplicity. So there's a this is the beauty for me. It's that is that you have all these people, some of whom are deeply devout, some of whom are not, uh, who recite all these words that they no doubt believe. But with the exception of a few people that are theologians, <laughs> they don't fully grasp. And I think there's something beautiful about that, that there's a kind of trust in it, um, that there is a movement of faith. I mean, that's one thing that I think, it's real, I think I've changed a lot since my evangelical days. I, I, I don't feel burdened to have to understand everything. Uh, and I think you know, and this again, this is just me. I don't wanna you know say that this is true of other other people, but um, I think it may just be because as a as a Christian philosopher, always interested in questions of faith and reason, I kind of felt this burden to have to have an argument for everything, and I just don't feel that anymore i mean i i I like arguments, I make lots of them in my writings, but I just don't feel that that my faith depends on whether I can answer every question. And, and, and I mean it would be like the way that the illustration that's helped me think this through is imagine if you got married and every morning you woke up rehearsing the arguments as to why you were got married. You wouldn't get stay married very long. <laughs> right? I mean it's not that reasons don't play a role in your in, in who and why you married the person you did. It's just that thats not everything about it. So I think in terms of the beauty, so I would say that it's it's that, it's the sort of the weird collection of people that the Catholic Church brings together. You know, so there was my Sicilian grandmother um, who went to Mass every day praying for me, and then um, Joseph Ratzinger one of the great theologians biblical theologians of all time are part of the same church and yet, if my grandmother met Ratzinger, they could have a conversation uh so I think that that there's that that it's that kind of i don't know if that counts as beautiful, but it seems that way to me
0: yeah that's good and and I've got ten more questions I'd like to ask you, but maybe the last one I'll ask you is just. I, I like to do philosophy. I consider myself more of a philosopher than a theologian, though. I mean, it's hard to distinguish them for me. And one thing I've noticed is most Christian philosophers, it seems like, are Catholic, and a lot of the 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 greatest and most serious intellectual institutions, at least in America, are Roman Catholic. Do you have a sense for why that is?
2: Ah, that's a good question. Um, I just think it's that, uh. I think the Catholic Church has, from its earliest days, has always uh, tried to confront and respond to the intellectual challenges of its time. So if you look, for example, um, let's say going back i mean, to the very early days, obviously, obviously some of my non-Catholic, Friends would say the Catholic Church wasn't around then. But uh, you think about some of the early church fathers, the, the, the sort of challenges they had to deal with, um, Stoicism, Platonism, uh, and then later on Aristotelianism. And so the, the Catholic Church has this long tradition of being able to uh, see in... Uh, you know non-christian thought god's truth whenever it's there and to appropriate it in a way that illuminates its doctrines and so this is why you find you know some catholic theologians and i think it's they probably take this from the fathers the idea that the gospel arrived in the in the fullness of time uh, i think it was it may have been um I don't know if it, it was, I, it clearly wasn't Tertullian. I, I don't know what, it may have been Irenaeus. I forget which church father used that, f- or employed that phrase to to make the argument that certain Christian doctrines could have not been articulated if not for the fact that uh, Greek philosophical thought was present. And so the, the Catholic Church has had has not had a difficulty with uh, sort of finding a way to appropriate uh, and to respond to, when necessary, uh, non-Christian thought. And so uh, this is why I think one of the—I think this is why I think, for example, um, uh, Reformed scholasticism has a lot in common with with Catholic thought— it, 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 and I've just read a little bit of it. Uh, it's, it realizes that uh, that it, at least in terms of uh, the doctrines that come from the Nicene Creed, you you need that that kind of philosophical scaffolding to make sense of those things. Later on, when you when you uh, get to um, say the 19th century, uh, certain liberal uh, biblical scholars like Harnack want to excise from the Christian story all remnants of Greek thought because it's somehow foreign or alien. I actually think that that is a very unchristian move to make. I mean, I don't think you can understand, for example, the the gospel of John without understanding uh, the, inf- the, you know, the fact that he's writing at a time when Jewish thought is deeply influenced by Philo. Uh, So I, and I think that's part of the story and it's okay, we should own it. (laughs) So to answer your question, I, I, you know, going back to sort of why, why is this, I, I think it's, it's, um, I think it's, it has to do with just, uh, an understanding that, that the entire creation is God's and that, uh, you know, that. That our minds are given to us by God to know the world, and that, that revelation is something is special, but it's not the only way that we can know things about God.
1: Yeah, yeah. One final question as we— as we wrap up here, uh, you've already mentioned figures like Aquinas, and you've mentioned the Council of Trent and Vatican II. But um, so we have those those sources that are there in place for the listeners to go check out if you want to learn more. But maybe uh, who are some of your favorite contemporary Roman Catholic writers right now that you would direct someone to if they wanted to learn more about Roman Catholic thought and how it's being expressed today?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 have kind of a hodgepodge of, of people that I, I like, um, uh, one very popular writer that, that, that I, who's I really accessible, who's a philosopher at Boston College is Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, uh, uh Edward Fazer, who's a philosopher, um, uh, Catholic philosopher is very good, uh, the work of, uh, uh, of Ralph McInerney, who, who's a, uh, he recently passed away about a decade ago. A professor of philosophy at um, uh, at Notre Dame, uh, the uh, translator of Dante's Divine Comedy, Anthony Esselon, uh, is quite good. Uh, I also think uh, Pope Benedict the uh, book, Introduction to Christianity, uh, which uh, he published at, when he was. Uh, Archbishop uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger uh, is a very good book. In fact, I've got a couple of colleagues here at Baylor who are not Catholic who use it for a class they teach. Uh, it, it's not a, it's, I mean, it is obviously written by a, a Catholic uh, writer, but, uh, you know, much of it can be appreciated, if not all of it, by, by non-Catholic uh, Christians as well. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so there are uh, obviously John Paul II. Uh, one, one. I would encourage uh, uh, non-Catholics to read some of the encyclicals. Um, those are documents issued by the Pope. Uh, for for evangelicals, I think the the one that is there are two that are particularly important: uh, Evangelium Vitae, which is the Gospel of Life, uh, which deals with issues of, like abortion and euthanasia and the death penalty, and then there's. Um, Uh, Fidei Ratio, which is on faith and reason. And that encyclical, I think, resonates a lot with uh, uh, evangelical philosophers that are interested in issues of faith and reason. In fact, I remember uh, talking extensively about it with J.P. Moreland about 20 years ago before I'd returned to the Catholic Church, and he was actually blown away at how similar uh, John Paul II's thinking was to Dallas Willard's. (laughs) Uh, philosopher at um, uh, late philosopher at at University of Southern California Uh, but that shouldn't be surprising because uh, Willard was a a student uh, or a devotee of Edmund Husserl uh, and so was John Paul II so uh, interesting connections
0: so those are resources for others now for those who want to read your stuff do you have a website? I can't remember
2: I do, FrancisBeckwith.com.
0: Awesome. So I'll tell you, everybody, go check out FrancisBeckwith.com. Go find all the... I had no idea you had a, this book, uh, Never Doubt Thomas, that to my shame should have done my, my homework <laughs> uh, that I would have read beforehand. But I, I'll tell you, I, I've, everything I've read from you, it's fantastic. So if anybody's listening... Well, thank you. Go, go read his stuff. Go buy it. Go read it. Enjoy it. Learn. Profit from it. Um, I think you can tell from this conversation that he's both... Uh, sharp, and he's also just a really fun and charitable guy. So, I, I mean, all of the dispositions that we want to encourage, I think he embodies. So, I, I recommend all those things. And for everybody who's been tuning in, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.